Remember when logging into social media sounded like this? For some of us, that was well into adulthood. But social media has been humming in the background of young people's lives as long as they can remember. My students now have spent their whole lives on social media. They can't remember a time they were not on social media un unless they came from a family that restricted their access to it. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, how social media is changing the way we live in the world. Social media is awash with DIY celebrities. And with the right filter, everyone's got a picture-perfect life. And even when we know nobody's life is actually perfect, that endless scrolling affects our self-esteem. Miriam Liss and Mindy Urchel are looking into what's behind all those smiling selfies. Miriam and Mindy are professors of psychology at the University of Mary Washington. You know, you think people constantly taking pictures of themselves have a lot of confidence and positive self-image, but the two of you discovered something different in your research about people who post selfies, especially young women. What'd you find? So we were looking at two particular behaviors related to taking and posting selfies on social media, and they were the number of selfies people reported taking before posting one. So did they take one quick picture and post it, or did they take 20 and screen for what they considered to be the best? And then the other thing we looked at was whether people reported engaging in photo manipulation. So were they editing their photos? And that could be as simple as putting a filter on the photo to tweak the lighting, or it could be adjusting their appearance because there are lots of photo manipulation techniques that you can do with a cell phone these days that are well beyond uh, my personal editing skills. And what we found is that when people were taking more selfies before posting one, they were more likely to also report experiencing depressive symptoms. And when they manipulated their photos, they reported that they felt deceptive in how they presented themselves on social media and that that in turn was related to their feelings of depression. So it's not the selfies themselves that are problems. It's more how people are engaging with the process of taking and sharing selfies that seems to be problematic. And if I can add a little bit, we also um, identify the type of woman who might be more likely to take a number of selfies and to do, engage in photo manipulation. Women who tend to do something called self-objectify. So they're more likely to be worried about how their body looks and more likely to be thinking about their body from an observer's perspective. So just kind of constantly being in the state of, how am I looking? Am I looking okay? And women who scored higher in self-objectification were more likely to be doing these two behaviors, which was the taking lots of selfies before you post and the photo manipulation. So there seems to be that not, not everybody has taken 50 selfies before they post, but women who are really concerned about how their body looks and care a lot about how their body looks are the women who are more likely to be doing that. And which women do you think do care more about? Who do objectify themselves more? So there's a lot of different research that shows that younger women um, have higher rates of self-objectification. I think there's research that show that it's higher in white women, but really women across racial spectrums um, experience higher rates of self-objectification. And something that um, self-objectification leads to in general is a sense of body shame, because once you start looking at your body and saying, oh, I care so much about how it looks, almost inevitably it's going to lead to, yeah, I'm not so happy with how it looks because it's not looking the way it's supposed to. And it leads to body shame. But this is a phenomenon really you can see across the age and gender and um, race spectrum, but you see mostly with younger women. And surely we've seen it since time immemorial, right? Women have always primped. Well, yes. And there's, there's a difference between primping or caring how we present ourselves to others and self-objectifying. It's normal to check how you look before you leave the house. Uh, I, I often use the example of if you're leaving a public restroom, it's good to make sure you don't have toilet paper <laughs> stuck to your shoe, right? There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're constantly checking, how do I look? 
Are there any roles showing where I don't want them to be? Is this my best side? That's distracting you from all the other things you're probably trying to do in your life. And we only have so many mental resources to allocate. And so if we're allocating a chunk to focusing on our appearance, then they can't go to all the other things we're trying to do. So we end up being less effective at the tasks we're trying to take on and spending a lot of time focusing on ourselves in a negative way, as opposed to that quick check of, do I have spinach in my teeth? Do I have paper stuck to my shoe? Nope. Okay. I'm good. Were the students you studied, the students who are in your classes? The students in this particular study were all taking the introductory psychology class at our university. So they were generally speaking, early on in their college career. Uh, They weren't all first-year college students, but they were generally younger. And so they were the types of students we were teaching, although at that moment, I don't know if we were personally teaching any of them. I've heard a lot recently from people who admit social media is making them depressed, and so they're solving it by just turning it off for a while. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've largely done that Um, not necessarily because of appearance concerns, but I am almost never on social media anymore. I have accounts, but I almost never use them unless I'm responding to a direct message to me because I was just finding too much negativity there, either from what I was seeing posted or from my reactions to what was being posted. And that wasn't a good use of my energy. And I wanted to redirect that in a more positive way. So I've largely stopped using social media. And I know I'm not alone in that. But even when people don't stop, we can recognize that bad things are happening, but still engage with them, especially if social media is a way that you primarily keep in touch with friends or family or has become the social norm for how you connect with peers. It might be hard to step away in that same way because it plays a different role in your life. Miriam, what about you? Yeah. I I still go on social media, but I really try to take it with a grain of salt. I, I get a little less concerned about body image posting, although sometimes if I see somebody my age who who looks perfect and amazing, I do get a twinge and think, hey, you know, what's wrong with me? Why don't I look like that? But I have to take that with a grain of salt because I know the research and I know that what people are posting are not accurate. Um, I get more affected with posts about parenting when people post me post about all the glorious things their children are doing and how happy their children are, especially over this pandemic year when, you know, it's not been that great. And I have to remind myself that people tend to post the good stuff and I don't know what's going on behind closed doors. So, and, and if you look at my feeds, I I tend to post the good stuff. I want to use Facebook as a means to kind of remember the best of my life. I like looking back at the memories and I like doing it in a positive way. So if you looked at my Facebook posts, you'd think my life was glorious and pretty great um, because I'm selective about what I post, not from a, you know, taking 12 selfies before I post, but just kind of posting the more positive events that are happening in my life. So when I look through other people's posts, I try to keep that in mind and not go, oh my goodness, I just had such a terrible day and these kids are succeeding so well how come they're doing so well in the pandemic and I'm not? Um, That's where it gets me. But I don't, I haven't disengaged, but I try to keep it, you know, a realistic perspective. You know, and I'm always thinking that actually pretty much everybody's living lives of quiet desperation. (laughs) So no matter what we see, we know there's a lot underneath. Right. Exactly. You have no idea what people are not posting, and knowing what I'm not posting makes me yeah. <laughs> makes me pretty aware that other people are not posting the whole truth either. It's just kind of and and people may be doing that on purpose to um, only want to remember the best things. One of the things that's important to keep in mind is that even when people know that what they're seeing on social media, or for that matter, other types of media, is curated, they're still impacted by it. We can challenge our our thoughts, right? Miriam can go on social media and go, yeah, but they're not showing when their 13-year-old had a temper tantrum, even though their 13-year-old may have had a temper tantrum. She can know that and challenge that, but that doesn't mean we don't still have those uh, negative comparisons that we engage in. Have, have your students changed and gotten smarter about all this in the last several years? What have you noticed about their evolution in their well-being on social media over just the last six years? 
One of the things that I've noticed over the last X number of years with students is just that they're shifting what social media they use. When I first started teaching, students were on Facebook. And then we started to see Twitter and then Instagram and then Snapchat, right? There's just always a new system. TikTok is definitely part of it. And so a lot of times what I'll hear from students is, oh, but social media type X is different. (laughs) We use it differently. But all that means is that it shows up in a slightly different way. It moves forms. So I think sometimes they feel like if they're on a new site, that those problems that existed on the old site won't be there. And that doesn't actually seem to be the case. My students now have spent their whole lives on social media. They can't remember a time they were not on social media unless they came from a family that restricted their access to it. But they always knew it was there, which is very different. I'm in my 40s. It's very different than people my age. But because of that, I think they might be less critical of it at times because it's just so much part of their background in the same way that those of us who grew up with traditional network television with ads didn't think about those things in the same way because that was just what we encountered all the time. So I I think that's one of the cross-generational pieces that we have to keep in mind is that we might all be using these same types of systems, but we are experiencing them in different ways just due to the role they've played in our lives over time. You know, it's helped a lot in recent years to know about body shaming and body positivity and to be armed with an understanding of of what social media can be doing to us and protect ourselves against it. But sometimes I just think, how different are we from our grandmothers, let's say, right? It seems like they had it pretty tough, too, when there was zero social media. And there was still a lot of self-doubt and worry and jealousy, I assume, mixed in with all the great. Yeah, I mean, these are questions that aren't new. They've been coming up as long as people have been around the exact things that we might be trying to change about our bodies might vary across time and circumstance. But the concerns about how we look have always been there for people whose value is judged by appearance. And women, more so than men, have been judged on their appearance, where their their value, their worth, their status and standing is often tied to attractiveness conventional, societally approved attractiveness. And in that way, this has been a dominant theme for realistically centuries. And I'll just add a few things. Um, I think in some ways, maybe it was worse for our grandparents because they would have had less other domains to achieve in. Now women can gain their self-confidence in the workplace, in politics, in areas that maybe our our grandmothers were not didn't, didn't have access to. Um, but on the other hand, things may be worse for us now because now we have access to all of these visual images and social media and we're inundated with images of women that are beautiful in ways that were less accessible to our grandmothers. So maybe they would see other beautiful women around them, but they weren't constantly bombarded with Photoshopped images of perfect looking women. So I think... You know, beauty has always been valued. Beauty has always been valued, particularly in women, but how has changed over time? Tell me about the idea of disingenuity that you found in your survey. I think this notion of disingenuity is really important. So one of the things we found in our study is that the women who were engaging in photo manipulation, so they were, you know, using Photoshop or other tools to actually change the way they looked before they post their selfies, felt as though the images they were posting online were not a genuine reflection of who they are. And that sense of disingenuineness was related to depression. So I think there's a lesson there that when we are posting things that are really not true, that are not just the best side of what happened, but a real kind of shifting of the truth of who we are, we might get lots of likes. We might get lots of positive comments, but they may feel empty to us. And we may actually not benefit from any of the positive feedback we get from those posts because we know it's based on a lie. And that sense of disingenuity was related to depression. And I think that's really important that we need to um, be honest about who we are um, and we need to be compassionate 
about the parts of ourselves that are not perfect. We don't have to put every negative thing that happens to us out there for everybody to see. Um, but we have to realize that, you know, if we're kind of really bending and shifting and shaping the truth in ways that are that are inaccurate, that's going to have a negative effect on us, even if we're getting positive feedback. Now we all have to deal with the pandemic and emerging from our cocoons. Yeah, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's been killing me is all the people posting... I mean, this is a whole other issue of, you know, these people are, you know, from a whole year, people were posting all these gatherings of maybe, you know, families that were bubbling together. And I was seeing other people's kids socializing in ways that my kids were not. It's like, hmm, you know, (laughs) I'm glad these kids are having these opportunities, but (laughs) that's not happening over here. And how will my kids emerge at the end of it? I don't know. That's a different issue. I know. It's just endless, isn't it? Yeah. Miriam and Mindy, thank you for sharing your insights with me and with good reason. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Miriam Liss and Mindy Urchel are professors of psychology at the University of Mary Washington. During the past year, the digital became a lifeline, a way to connect socially and also to get essential information. And some local officials became sort of celebrity figures, coming to us live from press rooms and even their living rooms with the latest virus updates. My next guest is a professor of public relations at Radford University. John Bromet says the pandemic has changed crisis communications forever. John, you first really dove into Twitter when Twitter was still pretty new back in 2007 after there had been a reported shooting at nearby Virginia Tech, which is not far from where you teach? So this was a shooting that happened a few years after another shooting at Virginia Tech that at the time was one of the worst shootings in American history. So hearing that this had possibly happened again, everyone on campus was just in shock. Uh, So I, at the time, went into my faculty office and decided that I wanted to look at Twitter and see how people were communicating. It was something that was interesting to me, and I felt like it was my way to cope with the situation myself. What did you notice about what people were saying on these early tweets? So because of the first shooting that had happened in 2007, the most predominant tweet was people were in disbelief that this was happening again. Uh, One of the emotions that we identified in my study was people were angry. I think they were mad at the situation that after a university suffered the way Virginia Tech did in the first shooting, that it was happening again. Do you think we still use Twitter that way? I mean, this was only a year after Twitter was born in March of 2006. A year later, you're looking at people coping in crisis using tweets. I do believe that that based on some of the things that we've experienced as a society, the pandemic, um, the issues that you see in the news on a daily basis, I believe that people are coping more. You know, when you feel isolated, let's take the pandemic, for example, you need to reach out to someone. You need to find out, you know, you're suffering for the pandemic. It caused mental health issues with people. And I think Twitter gave them an outlet to hear that other people were there for them. Why do you think people check in during a crisis on Twitter, other than to find, of course, the latest developing information? Is it emotionally supportive to realize all of these voices weighing in who feel like me? I I personally think it is somewhat comforting. When we're faced with adversity, and uncertainty. Sometimes our reactions, we don't know if they're if they're appropriate. And I think being able to log on and see that other people are experiencing similar issues, it's very comforting. Um, you feel like that you're you're not just alone. You know, social media and Twitter have grown up so much since then. In March of 2020, mayors and governors across the country were live streaming press conferences on Facebook and Twitter. Remember when New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo live streaming every day 
to millions viewing him to say, here's what the latest is about this pandemic crisis. Uh, as you know, the situation changes daily now, uh, which is expected. This is an evolving situation. Uh, so we want to make sure that you understand that as the facts change, our strategy changes, right? We have a plan. We're sticking with the plan. The plan adjusts or moves as the facts move. I think the information and messaging that he provided made people feel like he was competent, like he was under control. And in terms of coping, it made them realize that hopefully something was going to be done about this pandemic, that, that we had someone in control who was going to get us through this terrible situation. And he seemed so honest. You know, he was just laying it all out there. Yeah, one of his strongest statements um, was when he told people that, you know, the buck stops with him, that I he wanted to be accountable and that the policies that his executive orders, he knew that there would be negative ramifications, um, that it would affect some people negatively. But he tried his best to explain, you know, why he was doing that. You know, I think he made, uh, made a pretty strong argument and people were convinced by that at the time. I think Virginia Governor Ralph Northam was also having regular conferences early on in the pandemic, letting people know the changing numbers, the changing advice. His style was very different. Let me play a clip from one of Ralph Northam's news conferences. It is difficult to live with uncertainty. We can expect to see more depression, alcoholism, and domestic violence. But the sooner we all take these necessary steps to slow the spread, the sooner we will all get through this. We all need to take care of each other from afar because social distancing is the only path forward. That's why I'm directing these business closures today. That is why I am closing our schools. Our priority is to save lives. His approach, he is a little more soft-spoken, uh, yet confident. The one thing that Ralph Northam had is that um, he was a doctor before becoming a governor. And I think automatically people viewed him as being competent in dealing with this situation. Um, I was very pleased with the fact that most of the executive order, actually all of the executive orders that Governor Northam created, he really went above and beyond to explain the rationale behind his decision making. And the other thing that stood out to me is Governor Northam gave you dates ahead of time. He said, look, we are going to, um, you know, wait until a particular date, maybe 30 days ahead. We're going to reassess the situation. And what that did, it promoted the message that he was basing everything that he was doing off of data. And I think that's really important if you're trying to convince people to follow your executive orders. It's so interesting that I imagine the people following these two governors and many others like them, I imagine their audiences were huge in a way that would be unfathomable in another time. Yeah, yeah. Before the pandemic, I mean, even though I keep up with, with our governor and I've kept up with our governors over the past years, I've never sat down and really just watched an entire press conference before. And these governors, I think with their messaging, the people who helped them design um, their talking points were really focused on if we can reduce uncertainty amongst, you know, the people in our, in our cities and in our towns, um, in our states, then I think that's going to lead to uh, people feeling better and people having hope that we'll make it through this situation. What makes us not mind or forgive the governor, the politician, the health leader, if they give us conflicting signals over the long course of the pandemic? When do we lose trust and when do we hang in there with them? I think maintaining trust evolves around having an understanding about the data. Data changes. I mean, when this first, you know, hit the news cycle and people started getting sick, they knew very little that you just have to understand that data, you know, they do change and therefore the responses are going to have to change as well. But I think people too have become, you know, we've been in this pandemic, it's been over a year now. And I think people are just so ready to get past this. 
uh, to move on that they're starting to to look for reasons why they should do that. When they hear a governor say that we've got a few more months, that, that we're not out of the, the woods yet, I think that really is disappointing and it leads to some level of distrust, even though that messaging may be accurate. What do you think some of the big lessons are going to be that are taught in crisis communication, looking back on how it was handled during the pandemic? One concept that we talk about in crisis communication is called message mapping. And one of the most important components of that concept is coming up with supporting information that will resonate with your targets of your message. And I think when we look back, um, we'll understand how difficult it is to communicate on social media when there's so much disinformation and opinionated information out there. So I think you're going to see a reliance on more data-driven decision-making, on more research that looks at how do we create messages that are going to resonate and be effective with our stakeholders in terms of trying to protect them, to get them to do things like wear a mask and to socially distance. I think data is going to become more and more important over the next few years. So about eight years ago, when Twitter was a lot newer, were you more idealistic about what you thought new forms of social media might provide us? Oh, I was so optimistic because social media came came out. And my first thought was the consumer is going to have a voice now. People who normally would not be heard if they go into a company and something happens and no one would hear them. Now Twitter and Facebook will allow them to amplify their voice and it's going to lead to positive change. And I still, you know, I won't argue that that change is still not occurring. But then when you see some of the the terrible stuff that you can see on social media, um, some of the disinformation, um, bots communicating, um, people just on there that, you know, they're not really looking to cope. It's more about to be mean to other people and attack people with different viewpoints. I think that's that's getting in the way of us making real progress. John Brumette is a professor of public relations at Radford University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. Long before Twitter and cancel culture, there were celebrity scandals. Take Mr. O, the first American celebrity you've probably never heard of. After the Revolutionary War, Mr. O became a nationally renowned speaker, packing concert halls just through word of mouth. Then he fell from grace just as quickly. Carolyn Eastman, a history professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, has written a book about him, The Strange Genius of Mr. O, the United States' First Forgotten Celebrity. Carolyn, tell me about Mr. O, how this brilliant but poor schoolteacher who immigrated to America from Scotland after the Revolutionary War ended up becoming so famous. Yeah, James Ogilvie was a very ambitious but impoverished schoolteacher who, as you say, had immigrated from Scotland in the 1790s and wound up teaching some of the most elite sons of Virginia families at that time. And in order to teach them how to speak well, he himself developed a real talent for it. And so he decided that he wanted to try to make a living at a job that didn't really exist at the time. He wanted to try to make it as a, an itinerant orator. How did Thomas Jefferson come to know of him and admire him? 
around 1806 and 1807, Ogilvy wound up opening a school not far from Charlottesville. And on weekends, Ogilvy actually gave public talks at Monticello for a crowd of people who saw his lectures, his moral lectures, as a kind of replacement for going to church for people who considered themselves to be deists. Jefferson wrote a series of letters for Ogilvy that talked about how much he admired listening to Ogilvy, how um, instructive his lectures were, and how much they benefited society. And then at some point, Ogilvy just exploded across the national scene, right? As much as you could in post-revolutionary America. It's amazing how quickly it happened. Ogilvy became discussed as a celebrated orator within the first year of his heading out from Monticello. He lectured in the United States for 10 years, traveling from place to place in a period when most Americans didn't travel more than about 100 miles away from home in their lifetimes. You have a wonderful passage that describes just how excited his audiences were to hear him. Would you read that for me? Yeah. Um, the room quieted shortly after 7 o'clock as he stepped on the stage. Ladies fanned themselves, trying to maintain the appearance of feminine delicacy in the room's collective heat. Would this performance be as masterful as they had heard? Would he have full range of what he called his powers? In those few moments before he started speaking, the audience seemed to hold its breath. But when his deep sepulchral voice sounded through the room, his body seemed to transform and loosen. Watching the gracefulness of his movements reminded them of what they had read about the great orators of the classical world, Cicero, Seneca, as Ogilvy's physical posture on stage conveyed authority, self-possession, moral certainty. He began with no preface, none of the usual thanks to the audience, no humble comments about hoping to be worthy of their attendance. He simply leapt into his subject. When we review and analyze our pleasures and our pains, he began, looking around the room, even the most vulgar mind must see the scantiness and evanescence of the former and the multiplicity, variety, and permanence of the latter. Evidence of the world's pains was everywhere, he said. Consider the pages of history, a black catalog of corrosive calamities, he continued. That's a fascinating account of him. I wish I had been there. Don't you wish there were recordings? You know, the thing about studying a period like this, when the topics he talked about were so, they were so important to the people he spoke to and so not that important to us. The, the poetry he quoted from was so meaningful to his audiences and so unknown to us. I'm always reminded by how much I don't know about the whole dynamic of that period. I'm fascinated by the things we don't know. And so for all, all the more reason, I wish I, could, I wish I could see one of these performances. You write that he recited important poetry at the end of every one of these talks. That's right. He delivered poetry by Shakespeare, by Alexander Pope, by um, Walter Scott. He loved reciting Scottish poetry, Elegy in a Country Churchyard. I mean, there were a series of different poems that, that people found very meaningful and those were often the most popular parts of his talks because, again, the poetry he was reciting was so familiar. It was poetry that people knew by heart. And yet he could often invest those poems with new levels of meaning because of the way he delivered and performed them. Let's explore some of the weird downsides he experienced after the height of his popularity Tell me, for instance, about the time he stopped in the middle of his performance because the audience was so unnerved by what he was saying, and he knew it. <laughs> That's one of my favorite moments in his career. Yeah, he delivered a talk that he had just delivered a couple of weeks earlier because, as it turned out, he had delivered his usual lecture in a way that made people think that he was advocating for atheism. And so he essentially, for that, for that 
period of time in Philadelphia in 1808, really, he simply had to leave town. There was no coming back from this scandal about this, the sense that his audience had that he had been advocating for atheism. That's interesting because maybe Jefferson wasn't an atheist, but as you said, he was a deist. Aren't deists sort of like atheists? You know, when I was in high school, I remember learning about deism, learning that a number of the founding fathers had been deists. And the way that I had been taught that topic was that deists were, you know, essentially good Christians, except they were a little more hands-off when it came to thinking about God's intervention in human life. But in the course of researching this book, I really found that that was inaccurate, that in fact, during the founding era, deists were lumped in with atheists in that deists, like atheists, refused to believe in the Bible's many miracles. So turning water into wine or walking across water, you know, none of that would have held any weight for deists or atheists. And so in essence, Deists were just as maligned as atheists because Christians felt that they were both groups were trying to undermine the Christian church and the very beliefs that Christians held so dear. So was it his atheism that eventually had him fall from grace? No, it wasn't atheism. But what really condemned him in the United States was the fact that he decided to write a book and it turned out to be a terrible book. That's one of, I have to admit, (laughs) one of the things that perversely I find the most entertaining about his story, the fact that writing a book was so damaging to his career. After immersing yourself in his life, what do you think you have learned about our times? Have you seen things that resonated now or more how different we are? One of the things I loved the most about working on this project and unpacking the strange career of this eccentric man was the way it illuminated the early 19th century in ways that I hadn't seen before. On the other hand, our taste in celebrities says something about who we are, who we want to be, where we think our country ought to be. And in Ogilvy's case, that was also true. So then when you look at the way that he ultimately fell from grace and so many Americans came to believe that maybe they had placed their love in the wrong place, he wasn't so admirable after all, that also tells you a lot about who Americans thought they were and what they thought they ought to be. It made me think a lot about how Of course, a lot of us uh, maybe regret the influence of celebrity culture today, but celebrity itself as a phenomenon can tell us a lot about who we are and where we want to go. Weirdly, it makes me think of the governor of New York. (laughs) That's a great, a great point. Yes. Someone who, especially during you know, the COVID-19 pandemic became a celebrity and and then fell from grace. It's a dramatic career. Carolyn Eastman, thank you for sharing your insights with me and with good reason. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It's been such a pleasure and I'm such a fan of the show. Carolyn Eastman is a history professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her new book is The Strange Genius of Mr. O, the United States' first forgotten celebrity. You can read more about Mr. O online at Encyclopedia Virginia. Comedians are a completely different kind of celebrity. Matthew Turner studies comedy as a professor of media and language at Radford University. He says some humor spans generations. He's gone to Weird Al Yankovic concerts with three generations of his own family, and he sees how Weird Al has inspired a new generation of comedians. Matthew, do you think we treat comedians different from other celebrities we revere? I would say so, right? I think, first of all, we tend to see them as more relatable, right? Somebody who is... Uh, you know, famous for being in serious roles is 
is in some ways a different kind of a person. Uh, but somebody who's a comedian, we can kind of imagine hanging out with them, uh, spending some time, sharing a drink, things like that. And so they just seem a lot more relatable to us. When you think about the comedic groups and individuals that you have most loved, do you think a thread runs through their style? Yeah, for me, I'm into wordplay. So I love clever wordplay. So I see a lot of that in the Marx Brothers, Monty Python, Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, There's lots of other things. I love kind of the insanity of some of these things that just make no sense. But when I get the uh, kind of the clever bit, it's like, oh, yeah, that's really clever. For me, that's kind of the the payoff there. Must a comedian be brilliant? Are the good ones brilliant? Because this is phenomenal stuff that they're doing. No, you don't have to be brilliant to be a great comedian. Um, A lot of physical humor really transfers across cultures, across time, and it doesn't require a lot of, you know, brilliance in terms of, you know, conceptual intellectual humor, and it's still great. Play for me several of the routines from some of your favorite comics. Okay. Um, Yeah, I'd say uh, Monty Python. Uh, And Monty Python is, is a group that I've loved uh, probably I discovered them in high school. Uh, I had friends who were into Monty Python, and uh, we would actually go to my house and we'd sit down and we'd watch Monty Python. Probably their best known is the the film Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And in this particular scene here, uh, it's really government and kind of the insanity of government. Uh, And uh, here they are talking about how King Arthur became king uh, and some of the class struggles. And and it's just really relevant even today. Let's let's, uh, hear what King Arthur says in terms of uh, how he has a mandate to rule. Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? (laughs) I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords, is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! But you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! Oh, but if I went round... Oh, yeah. Right. Well, you know, I also loved Monty Python. My favorite album was Monty Python's Flying Circus. Have you ever heard that one? Absolutely, yeah. We'd watch uh, episodes of the show uh, as part of our kind of a week weekend ritual there. They had one skit where it's state your claim, and one guy steps up to the mic and he says, yes, I wrote all Shakespeare's plays and my wife and I wrote his sonnets. <laughs> <laughs> And they can just get away with that. And there's no basis for it. It makes no sense. And it's still absolutely hilarious. What is that, though? Why is that so hilarious? And I don't want to bore people, but in terms of philosophical theory, it's it's an incongruity theory, right? We're, we're expecting one thing and we get something completely different. And so our minds, which are, you know, trained to try and think rationally and understand the world in those ways, gets confronted with something that's completely unexpected. And so one of the ways we respond to that is with with laughter. But I had smart, fun, dear, dear girlfriends in college who were left cold by Monty Python and wondered what what I saw in it. So, you know, one of the really interesting things about comedy is all of comedy is an inside joke. And you have to have kind of the same shared climate there to get it, right? So you have to understand the references, right? That's one of the challenges comedy faces. So um, somebody who's a really interesting character who has really been um, connecting generations of people, quite frankly, is Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, Weird Al Yankovic, uh, I discovered him uh, probably in grade school, actually. One of my uh, older brother's friends brought over a tape and changed my world. I didn't know you could 
you know, do comedy quite that way that you can make parody of serious songs and things like that. Uh, and, you know, his concerts now, they have generations going. My, my parents have gone. I've gone. I've taken my kids. Uh, so we've got three generations of people who are all, all together uh, listening to Weird Al Yankovic. He's quite frankly brilliant. And one of his uh, great examples of this is actually from his most recent album, uh, his most popular album. This is uh, one of the songs from there. It's called Lame Claim to Fame. And it's really, it really digs into uh, our culture and how we, we are celebrity obsessed. Uh, he talks about all of our, our lame claims. The first one to post on a YouTube video, right? That's the extent of our, our claim to fame here. So one of the, the great things about our current era, and this happened, of course, before COVID, but it allows people uh, this, this, this option that didn't exist before, uh, is the internet. And we have people who can now uh, reach out through the internet and reach an audience. You know, in the past, you would have to kind of pay your dues. You'd have to get in at the bottom. And now, if you have a good idea and a little bit of know-how, you can get stuff out and uh, people will be able to find it. And uh, when you hit that right spot, that sweet spot, you can go viral. Name some that you're following now you really like. Probably one of my favorites is a, uh, uh, they're called the Gregory Brothers, and they created the trend called Auto-Tune the News. They figured out that they could take uh, the Auto-Tune software, use it on politicians, on news reporters, and they could uh, Auto-Tune them so that it sounded like they were singing. And so they actually wrote songs around the phrases and the things that they were saying and turned them into popular-sounding songs. One of my favorites is uh, Double Rainbow. Uh, now, that's a, a video that originally went viral before the Gregory's had anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you remember that one? It's this uh, a, a gentleman who uh, is marveling at the beauty of nature, may or may not be drug-induced. Uh, but anyway, he's looking at this giant rainbow, uh, I think over Yosemite Valley or something, and he's just awestruck. And uh, it was so hilarious, it went viral. It's, oh my god, it's warm. I can't even capture it on my camera. Double rainbow on the way across the sky. Yeah, yeah. So intense. Double rainbow on the way across the sky. Wow, wow. Oh my god. Look at that rainbow. Woo! Woo! That is the baddest fucking rainbow I've ever seen. that. And I don't know why that's hysterical, but it is. It, it absolutely is. And the Gregory brothers, they recognize this, right? Their business plan is they actually watch for stuff to go viral. Right. Um, yeah. Another one that I love of theirs is a uh, video called I Love Cats. Now, in theory, this was based on a eHarmony video. The video went viral and then the Gregory brothers couldn't resist. Um, and, and you'll notice when you listen to this, this will get stuck in your head. Not only is it funny, but it's really catchy. I love cats. I love every kind of cat. I just want to hug all of them, but I can't get hug every cat. So anyway, I am a cat lover and I love to run. I'm sorry I'm thinking about cats again. I really love cats. I'm thinking about cats again and again and again and again and again. I think about how many don't have a 
I haven't heard that, but that's great. <laughs> yeah, it'll be stuck with you for a long time, uh, uh, just to warn you. It's so interesting that you love comedy, you love slapstick, and yet you also study comedy, which isn't necessarily funny, right? Oh, no, no. I study, you know, philosophical theories of comedy, and German philosophers are not known for their humor. When I was uh, working on my dissertation, my wife uh, was going to work, and she said to me, uh, what do you want to do this weekend? It's a Friday. And I said, I can't do anything. I've got too much work. She comes back from work, uh, and she finds me on the couch watching Monty <laughs> Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, and she says, I thought you said you were too busy to do anything that you had work. And I looked at her with all seriousness and said, I'm doing research. <laughs> Yeah. Matthew Turner, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. It's been my pleasure. So anyway, I am a cat lover and I love to run. I'm sorry I'm thinking about cats again. I really love cats. Matthew Turner studies comedy as a professor of media and language at Radford University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer, Cassandra Deering, and Dante Woodfolk are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Yeah.